0: You have reached a phone call from Paul. A literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graver's conversation with Rebecca Solnit. Hello? Paul, it's Rebecca.
1: Rebecca, what a pleasure to hear your voice.
0: I have no idea what all that was about.
1: Well, it's sort and of it's sort of interesting, it, no? The the phone has become this exotic machine. Well the landline certainly has I keep it partly for interviews
0: I did one with the CBC yesterday at 5 in the morning
1: oh goodness me but but it's true that the the phone the way we used to use the phone has has nearly disappeared we don't hear the the grain of the voice anymore of other people
0: well I- People have settled, you know, the whole theory of technology is that we go from worse things to better things, but of course we've gone from the kind of elegance of email to the banality of texting and the capacity to have deep and thoughtful landline conversations to the kind of, you're breaking up, what? Uh, cell phone conversations.
1: It it is sort of amazing. It is sort of amazing, and that's why I really I really love the pleasure of this antiquated form, uh, where you don't see someone. And you hear their intonation. And I think there's something so beautiful. I always remember in, in a, in a fabulous passage of remembrance of things past, Proust talks about the early days of the telephone when he would call and he would hear the, the bells of the cathedral be, you know, on the line. And he would imagine the person where they were. And that brought a whole world that, of course, for him was novel and for us no longer is
0: interesting it's also people used to close their eyes to listen more deeply and the fact that phones give us hearing without seeing almost suggests that it could do it automatically you, um, or you know as a matter of course make us more focused
1: you know rebecca there is an essay of yours which i i mean there's so many essays of yours that that speak to me that i love but there's one that i i reread recently. About climate change uh, that you published years ago, maybe four years ago in the Guardian, um, call climate change what it is: violence. The cl- and they climate they, change
0: they, is violence.
1: Yes, and 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 uh, there is one line um, which I have quoted very often. I'm a, a quotomaniac by profession, but there's one line in particular that I, I think is a at the core of so much of what you think about and so much of what moves me. And it goes like this. Once we call it by name, we can start having a real conversation about our priorities and values. Because the revolt against brutality begins with a revolt against the language that hides that brutality.
0: Is that it's so great you homed in on that it's Why? almost like Why? my credo so much so that my next book with haymarket is called call them by their true names
1: oh goodness me
0: feel like that is the very first part of you know any meaningful process as knowing what you're dealing with and so much of the attempt to manipulate us begins with Linguistic deceptions, evasions, circumlocutions, euphemisms, and words like collateral damage and extreme rendition. And um, what 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 was the term? Not extreme rendition. The, the torture euphemism. And, um, you know, and I spend a lot of time around doctors and that you begin a cure with a diagnosis. Without the diagnosis, you don't know what to do. And so there's a sense that a diagnosis is just one version of clear language and truthful uh, telling. And so that even when we're talking about the worst things, calling them by their true names always feels really exhilarating to me, a breakthrough.
1: But but why, why such avoidance?
0: Well, because it's interesting. In a culture where, let's say, it's okay to you know, commit genocide, you don't have to disguise it. But in a culture where some people aren't okay with it, you pretend that you're doing something else. But also one thing we see in powerful people so often now is that they're lying to themselves as well as everybody else. That, you know, they aren't just saying, we don't give a damn about climate change because oil, you know, quarterly returns. They would rather, it's more fun to say climate change isn't real. And, um, you know, or that the studies are out on that or or there isn't a consensus. And so there's a way of kind of muddling, of using unclarity to defend against being accountable to yourself as well as others that I think is a big part of the culture. You know, there's, there's a wonderful bit in one of my favorite books, A Room with a View, where the old father of the romantic male lead says my dear i fear you are in a muddle and he really has this sense that muddles are where so much trouble comes from and there is a there's a production of muddle as smoke screens and double speak that is essential to doing the dirty work uh, you know in the world
1: you know rebecca it is right? it is um, it is truly amazing to me that the, the, the quotations that come back to you again and again seem to come back from a, a core that one might call Virginia Woolf. Um, she, she seems, um, to, to inspire and re-inspire you again and again and again. And, I recently also had occasion to reread your beautiful essay, which I think you gave as a lecture and then the Literary Hub published on libraries. And that inspired in in me to, to find this quotation from Virginia Woolf, where she says, I ransack public libraries and find them full of sunk treasures.
0: Oh so many good things in her writing. <laughs> I will look up the context for that, but uh, I did that as well. And I joked that I am indigenous to libraries and I learned to read in a sudden burst, as I mentioned in that essay, and then the library was my great refuge. More than a refuge, it wasn't just a place to withdraw from other things, but a place that opened onto the world in another way. You know, I still think of every book as a kind of box that reading lets you open, and inside is treasure, and just that sense when I first learned to read has never really left me of, you know, the kind of almost infinite treasure of a room full, a library full of books, and uh, the inexhaustibility of it, the sense of the innumerable directions you can go in. And Borges has his wonderful infinite libraries in his essays. But even a, li- a great library, or even a good library, is essentially infinite in that you'll never exhaust it. You can never go all the way through what's there.
1: So you know, the last conversation I had, Rebecca, just two days ago, was with Susan Orlean. And she is... About to to publish this fall, um, a, a really beautiful book, which I think you will enjoy, called the Library Book. And she has a line at the very end of 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 this this long one might say essay and love letter to libraries, where she says, "A library is a good place to soften solitude. A library is a whispering post." And, um, she made me think of you, and she made me think of Alberto Manguel, and she made me feel, think of all of those people for whom a library is a place where you, you're alone in the presence of others.
0: Somewhere, I think, in the far away nearby, I said that writing is lonely. It's a conversation with the dead and people not yet born. And there is that kind of wonderful sense of suspension of your race, of your gender, if you're reading, uh, you know, the, through the lives of others, of people long dead you're in conversation with if you're writing, you know, if you're in conversation with them by reading them, of people perhaps not yet born, if you're writing, who may read you, and um, people far away, people profoundly different than you, the sense of being Nobody, in a sense, because you're suspended from your own life. A state Virginia Woolf writes about so beautifully. And being anyone, because you can be, oh, Sinbad the Sailor, or, you know, Geronimo, or Joan of Arc, or, you know, any number of other people. Do you,
1: do, you, do you find that this kind of feeling that you're describing is one perhaps one solitary reason to remain hopeful
0: i think it suggests the capacity and desire we have that's encouraging i fear that people aren't spending nearly as much time doing it as they used to although there's still a tremendous appetite for stories and i'm happy if people get them through podcasts or radio or any of the other forms people are you know, or live storytelling, these other forms in which people are engaging with storytelling now.
1: Tell me, um, as we started this conversation, it, this conversation also is a, a desire to give people an appetite to read, an appetite to discover, an appetite to be alone precisely in the presence of, of minds who think. You mentioned this future book of yours, and I'd like to know something about it. I love its title.
0: Thank you. It's a collection of political essays that I've written over the last couple years and then I went back a little uh, to put in that one about climate change because it's so central to this idea of calling things by their true names of that the tremendous power there is in precise language, accurate language, and how much particularly it's a weapon against fake news and lies and dissembling and euphemism and things which have been so much part of the political destruction in this country the last well when did bush become president 15 years ago which bush it didn't exist before you know because of course the bush regime was where we got um you know the euphemisms for torture and civilian killings and things like that before we got the extraordinary uncontrollable mendacity of Donald Trump but um, so it's you know and it's interesting because it's this much about there's a tendency of us to this culture to treat politics as though it's this very objective impersonal thing out there in the world but it's also very much about you know it's emotions and desires Drive it, and it's an essay, it's a book with a number of essays about political emotions, about cynicism, the right wing ideology of isolation, about the merits of preaching to the choir, and
1: um, how does one get out of that?
0: Out of pe- preaching to the choir? Yeah. You know, my argument, and this was a Harper's column, not long ago, is that. It's always talked about as a bad thing, but why would you come to church if there was no preaching? And the <laughs> choir sings back to the preacher. And everyone has a conversation on the steps that if you look at the metaphor, yeah, yeah, it suggests that you're talking to people who don't need to be convinced, and that therefore all of our conversation should be evangelical missionary conversions of the heathens and barbarians. But... That assumes that the people we need to engage are the people who don't agree with us. And there's two problems there, one of which is that in most cases we're not going to convert them. And in most cases, the work that needs to be done to make the world we want isn't going to come from the people who currently don't believe in climate change or same-sex marriage rights or reproductive rights. It's the change... the The power will come from getting people who believe those things more passionately engaged, clearer, deeper um, in their involvement and understanding. And it also, preaching to the choir, is a phrase that denies the pure joy of conversation and that it's one of the great things to do in life if it suggests that conversation you know that talking is only this instrumental thing we do to get very tangible things. I, you know, essentially we're all salesmen. I'm only talking to you because I want to get you to do something that you don't want to do yet. That's kind of the antithesis of preaching to the choir. And that conversation is encouragement and support and celebration and you know philosophical inquiry. Inquiry and do you know what life is for? Are all things that. The dismissiveness of preaching to the choir doesn't acknowledge but it is very true for example to go back to climate change that all those i used to hear people kind of clucking over all those polls about how many people didn't believe in climate change as though if 100 percent of americans agreed that climate change was real that's where we needed to be and it's absolutely not you know we don't need everybody on board we need you know a passionately engaged minority of people on board, and they'll lead everyone else to where we need to go. You know that regime change, according to the work done by my friend, the political scientist Erica Chenoweth, really only takes about 3.5% of the population. You know, the majority of people believe in climate change. If we got 10% of Americans passionately engaged in getting us to where we need to be in response to it, that's, you know, that's what we need, not 100% belief. The, the 20% of people or 30% who don't believe it can go, I don't know, worship their SUVs and smokestacks and coal mines. And, you know, and they don't necessarily prevail.
1: And, you know, the, the, the words that, that strike me so powerfully in what you just said is passionately engaged, because in, in a sense, I think, um, to come back to that idea of preaching to the choir is that we, to the choir, is that in, in effect, when we speak to each other, the people we really love are the people whose adjectives we share.
0: Oh, how interesting. I hadn't thought of it as ad- adjectives, frameworks, stories, priorities. And I'm not sure what we have to have in common to, you know, be in the same congregation as someone. And one of the things that's interesting about this political moment is how that's broadened because we're in a crisis. I see a lot of people who are in many ways conservative. Benjamin Witt of the Lawfare blog. Um, Oh, I could go on. but
1: Oh, do go on. Do go on.
0: I'm I'm trying to think of some of the other names, but I won't. won't.
1: It doesn't matter. Forget um, the yes. Forget the names. But.
0: Yeah. but yeah, but that people who I might not agree with on some things agree on a lot of fundamental ideas about you know, the rule of law that nobody's above it about upholding the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, um, protecting the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, sticking with the Parrot Climate Treaty, although we haven't really exited it. And, um, you know, and so those, and it's interesting to find that you know that if there's a confederacy that's attempting to defect from what this country has been, then that we're the union, and the union is a broad coalition. And that's one of the things that I think is a struggle in sort of progressive left circles, as well as right-wing circles, is what does it mean to be in a coalition? Are people ready to be in a coalition, which means valuing what you have in common with people you also have significant differences with. Because there's often a sense of, if your beliefs aren't identical to mine, I have to punish you or avoid you or can't talk to you. And that's a both scary and ridiculous proposition in a country of 300 million with the tremendous diversity of opinion as well as ethnicity and religion and everything else you know and the geographical cultures and being able to talk to people who aren't like you I think is a fundamental skill you know I'm all for those great conversations with the choir but you should be able to talk to other people as well
1: should you try I mean try to change people's minds I mean, it's so hard. We know it from our own experience with ourselves to change our mind about something. And yet, if you don't, you you simply do not evolve. You need to change your mind. Experience must, in some form or fashion, make you understand that things could and maybe should be different. And when we speak to one another... That should be something that we we attempt to do through argumentation, through passion, through belief, through the idea that there is such a thing as a dignity to life and to people, and yet it's so hard to come about.
0: It's interesting because it feels like there's a piece of that question, which is how do minds get changed? And one of the things that we know is that it's not through the fun. Business of chastising people for being horrible and evil and wrong. Right. right. And um, so you know what I. But I often think change comes by osmosis, which is why preaching to the choir is off. Is real. It's another reason it's really valuable work that you. You know Martin Luther King talked to an audience that agreed with him in a moment when a lot of America thought he was too extreme and black people should sit quietly and wait for all good things to come. And people gradually got on board. I think there's a way that kind of living according to your deepest beliefs, you know, and that conviction can be contagious. And uh, you know, and that also you preach to the choir and then they go out and talk to people who might be a little bit different. And one of the things that makes me hopeful and one of the things I find fascinating is finding how beliefs shift And how subtle and incremental that process is, and how people usually think that their minds aren't changing and they're not influenced, but now they believe same-sex marriage is the most ordinary and obvious um, and right thing in the world. Whereas, you know, and a lot of those people would not have thought that at all 20 years ago. People think, you know, people are willing to believe women and understand a lot of the realities of how sexual assault takes place and um and harassment and why it matters and you know that rape causes rape not women's clothing for example that you know these ideas shift and they happens in this way that's a little bit mysterious and um hard to
1: trace really hard to trace
0: yeah and many years ago i had dinner with some people from the american civil liberties union and one of the lawyers said to me nobody ever remembers being for jim crow and you see these things like i remember wow. you know late in the bush regime uh, bush the second that everybody realized what a bad idea the war in iraq was and of co- and of course It would be nice if everyone came up and told those of us who were against it all along that we were awesome and we were right and they were wrong, and that mostly doesn't happen. That the way they realized it was wrong was by pretending they'd been against it all along, and you have these odd ways where people, you know, don't remember, um, you know, some of the things, some of the things that they were against, and some of the ways that they. You know, and that change itself is often so subtle and in and slow a process that you don't see it in yourself or your society unless you do something that I think books and reading and storytelling and intergenerational relationships help us do, which is to see these kind of long arcs of transformation around how we think about race or you know, native the presence of Native Americans in North America. How we think about that has been wildly transformed in the last, um, you know, 30 years. And I've been on board for that since 1991 or so. And it's been, and of course it's changed really, you know, it's changed continuously. But there's a way it changed back from the idea that Native people had disappeared in the 19th century, And we're not part of the present conversation that land rights and cultural rights didn't matter because being Native was something that went from being a subject of shame to a subject of pride. Between the 1990 and 2000 census, the number of people reporting being Native on the census doubled not because everyone had a child, but partly because mixed-race identities were recognized, I believe, and partly because a lot more people felt free or proud to claim those identities. And so you see these subtle things where people don't think that way anymore with so many things, but they don't remember that they used to think that way.
1: Partly because we... we. um We rewrite our histories our memory is such a strange thing we we reconstruct it in ways that that deceive us we don't quite know that we're doing so but we do
0: yeah we make a past that's you know in alignment with the present even though the past often wasn't in who we might have been individually and who we were as a culture
1: when you mention the word
0: Because path. I think a lot of people have a kind of amnesiac relationship to the world around them. And I shock younger people, but older people also don't remember that before Reagan, homelessness was a pretty rare thing in the United States. It wasn't, you know, the epidemic it is now. And part of why I think memory is so important is if you don't remember, there didn't used to be masses of homeless people who are particularly visible in san francisco then you don't remember that it doesn't have to be this way and you know and there's a tremendous power in memory which is part of why i think storytelling matters so much and uh, it's how you transform the limits of your first-hand experience and how you you know Prevent yourself from losing even your own memories, because I think people lose their own memories of what things were like in, say, the 1970s, which, when I think about it now, feels like some sort of fantastic Swedish socialism <laughs> compared to where we are now.
1: You know, I had the 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 pleasure, um, a, a bittersweet pleasure now of 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 speaking with John Berger, uh, two years ago, about two months before he died. And I was so so amazed by the extraordinary freedom of thinking. And I was wondering, though I never was able to ask him, how much of it came to him from not having been forced into a certain school, or even not having gone to all the schools people feel they need to go to in order to think. And it strikes me that you have that same appetite, that same appetite that comes from not having had to follow a certain regime, but rather following what, what really interests you, what really fills you with passion. And I, I wonder how much that is true. And I wonder how much that is true also about the place you've, um, you've committed yourself to live in.
0: First of all I love John Berger and his work so much. So I love being connected to him by your question. Oh, good!
1: I love him too. And and you know, after seven minutes of speaking with him, he wanted to go. And the only way I kept him on the line, Rebecca, was by reading poetry to him. And 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 and. and he, <laughs> well,
0: that sounds like a completely wonderful encounter. And
1: and he and he kept yeah. saying when I read him a poem, he would just, he would his response would be wonderful 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 and then I kept going but anyway let me answer let me let you answer the question
0: I would just add we corresponded and I had always meant to go visit him and I waited too long and I'm sad about that so I envy you having spoken to him, but I would say, you know, when I've written about it, I didn't go to high school, and I feel like that was one of the great strategic victories of my life. In the 1970s, everything was very nebulous and wide open, and I just managed by going to an alternative junior high school through 10th grade, that was a very... Kind place compared to the junior, the junior high school I'd gone to for seventh and eighth grade. And um then taking the GED test and starting college at 16 to avoid high school altogether. And I remember taking the GED, which is supposed to test you on everything you are supposed to know when you graduate from college and thinking like, I've basically goofed off for two years, I'm 15, and I'm apparently able to acquire all the knowledge you need to get out of high school what are you doing for those 3 or 4 years and feel and i've always felt since you know that a lot of what people learn to do is conform and obey a set of instructions about hierarchy who's valuable um you know, and that it's really destructive of the people who succeed in that system as well as the ones who fail, you know, and um, I know you didn't grow up in this country.
1: I'm not sure I grew up, I'm still trying
0: uh, well, that, that too <laughs> that you know there's the threat you know there's the people who feel damaged by having been unpopular in high school, but there's a different kind of tragedy of people who were so popular in high school you know the homecoming queens and football captains and things who feel as though they arrived at the end of the journey without ever having set out for it who feel that now they can rest on the laurels that aren't the laurels that will matter for you know the next 60 or 70 years of their life after high school and um, but it's a very destructive system of values and you look at schools in other countries and they don't have proms and homecoming queens and team spirit and you know this kind of elaborate sports culture that is very heteronormative as well as hierarchical
1: i want to ask you uh,
0: creates monsters out of the boys who are allowed to get away with bullying and sexual assault and stuff because they're good at sports
1: I want to ask you about California and maybe even something about Ivan Illich, but you were mentioning my own upbringing. I grew up in part in many different countries in Europe, but one of the countries where I lived was Belgium. And in the mid-70s, they introduced something they called le test américain, the American test. And you know what that was, Rebecca? That was multiple choice. Multiple choice was called in Belgium in the mid-70s, le test américain. And I was terrible at it because I always felt ambivalent. I always felt if you look at it from this perspective, that would be the answer. But if you look at it from that perspective, this would be the answer. And of course, that didn't bode well for school and I know now that that teaching has become so much that so much about getting the supposed right answer to a question which really means a right answer to a question if you look at it only from one vantage point which is exactly the contrary of what literature teaches us to do or for that matter really what a full life teaches us to think about and do
0: when I was- young in the 80s i read a wonderful report on why we should teach art in schools and one of the arguments was that there is no right answer in art there you know there's there might be good ways to do things but there's no simple one one right answer you know two plus two might be four but the way that a bird flies can be represented innumerable ways
1: Did you know? Did you know Ivan Illich?
0: I have friends who did, but I did not.
1: Because I only think of his incredible book called *The Schooling School*. And which seemed to me at the the heart of of many many of the questions and and comments we're making here. But I wonder also, in in your uh, escape from from high school, how much also California and your interest in California has had to do with the way you think.
0: You know, one of the things about being deinstitutionalized, because not only did I not go to high school, but I did sort of sprint through college and then get a journalism degree that was training to you know be a writer in the practical sense and not becoming an academic was the freedom to be synthetic to move through what's considered many fields in fact in Wanderlust early on I said that if fields of study can be considered Real fields, and the history of walking trespasses through many of them on its trajectory. And my life has been kind of like that, as not, and there's a, and there's a curious thing in academia, the idea that authority is demonstrated by specialization and that you have to sort of stay with color within the lines and stick within the lines of your, um, discipline, which I know a lot of people Feel fretful about, but California, you know, wasn't inherently an interest of mine. It just is where my father was born and where I grew up and have lived most of my life. But there was a really interesting business when I was young and working at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and um, going to the journalism school at UC Berkeley and um, did my thesis on the artist Wallace Berman. I began the process that i will go back to with a book a few books away of writing the history that wasn't available for me to read because when i was growing up in california we were regarded almost universally as a kind of barbarian hinterland that had gone as i often say from wilderness to shopping mall in a single bound and there was a lot of sneering on the east coast about it as about us as a a place without culture as a place full of yahoos and bimbos and babes and surfer dudes as lacking the high seriousness i have a friend whose east coast cousin once said to him oh people in california don't read and it was just amazing having someone dismiss you oh. know the state with the uc system and stanford and see it as some remarkable Intellectuals from Angela Davis to Gary Snyder, you know, spewing out ridiculousness like that. So I really wasn't, didn't grow up here with it being treated as an interesting place, although I loved the landscape, wondered about the native history, and actually went to Europe because of that kind of yearning for a sense of deep past and time and history, and then came back and had to find a way to locate it in this landscape and you know, feel like I have, and of course things have changed. A lot of California history has been written by Mike Davis and many other people since then, but it really was treated as kind of a blank and trivial place when I was younger. And there were some California historians, but the, the public mainstream attitude was very dismissive.
1: I remember a conversation I had on the phone also, and also in, in, in person with, with Werner Herzog, who said that in New York they, they uh, consume culture, and in Los Angeles they actually make it. And it struck me as very interesting, because there's such an assumption in New York that everything emanates from here. I've noticed... Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic response Rebecca. We'll, leave, we'll we'll leave it at that for for now. If you if you had to write an introduction t- today to to a book of yours that I I adore which also begins with a phenomenal quotation of Virginia Woolf Hope in the Dark um, could you imagine writing an introduction to Hope in the Dark and and what would it be in these in these really dark times
0: and i did write a new introduction for did the you? edition we put out in 2016 but it was before it seemed likely donald trump would be president I, but i would argue that hope has never been optimism the idea that everything will be okay no matter what or that it will all turn out fine and we don't have to worry hope almost feels like not quite the right word for what I was interested in, which is a sense of open-ended possibility uh, with room for us to participate in what the future is going to be. And um, one of the things I often think about is that if Hillary Clinton had succeeded at um Sorry, my cell phone just went off. If Hillary Clinton had succeeded Barack Obama, most of the country would have continued in the gentle slumber it was in for the previous eight years. And that there is something about this passionate engagement we're seeing now, that people are awake and attuned to the fact that they care about equality and freedom and justice and compassion and truth, and the survival of institutions from a free and trustworthy media to the Environmental Protection Agency, to public education, to, you know, the enforcement of civil rights and in an independent uh, just, justice department. And they're acting on that. and I heard Gloria Steinem who would know say that even the 60s didn't have this level of engagement. So it's quite exciting and that makes me hopeful as does sheer demographics. The half the people under 18 in this country are not white and they are not going to vote for this kind of hateful segregationist misogynist and servicing of the super-rich that the Republican Party has offered, which doesn't mean the Democratic Party has been wonderful, but does mean that these emerging voters and activists who we're seeing with, like, the Parkland kids are so sophisticated in their thinking and generous in their spirits. I think they're going to bring an extraordinary future and they make me hopeful they're beautiful in so many ways so those are two pieces of it i
1: um i feel i feel uh, encouraged i had not seen i must have an old edition which i love of hope in the dark was a a wonderful wonderful uh, quotation on the top of the cover as i recall of studs turkel who is someone else i I, I i so much so much love uh, loved and 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 miss, and so i I'll have to read your new introduction and and add to it mentally the one you the one you just verbally verbally gave to us
0: I would also just add because add that seeing people of color, women, trans people, queer people, etc., liberate themselves over the last. Well, really, over my lifetime has also been tremendously encouraging that, you know, I often hear people say, oh, you know, there used to be, say, ridiculous things like feminism hasn't, you know, feminism lost or hasn't changed anything. And I, but my attitude is always, you don't undo 5,000 years of patriarchy in a generation. And to measure from where the world was when I was born and where it is now is to see, Stunning change in the status of women, and increasingly the, uh, men getting on board with the idea that women are human beings endowed with certain inalienable rights. And, you know, and a lot of that has happened in the last five years. It's been an extraordinary feminist moment, you know, as we speak on the day after Bill Cosby was found guilty.
1: Incredible, um, yeah
0: after getting away with crimes against women for more than half a century, something changed. So I see so many of these changes. When I was born, there was almost no language to talk about the environment and almost nothing to protect it and a little bit of conservation setting uh, land aside, but no real understanding of the deep interconnectedness and that meant that we needed to think about air and water and land and chemicals and and climate and uh, all these things um, as elegantly interconnected. And, um, you know, so I've, there's a lot that I find encouraging at the same time that climate change in particular terrifies and horrifies me.
1: Is that the, is, is that, um, because we've come back to it again and again, and I, I started this conversation with that extraordinary quotation about choosing the right language. Is that the problem, if I can call it that way, that, that haunts you the most, um, climate change, or is that what keeps you up most at night, as, as often one asks, or are there things that worry you more?
0: Well, emotionally, I'm very responsive to misogyny and violence against women because it's personal for me, and I've written about it a lot. You you seem to have a role in the conversation, but intellectually, climate change clearly affects all living things and the conditions in which they live for all future time, or at least the next, you know, hundred millennia, and... um, You know, and so it's literally larger than anything else because it's the whole biosphere of the Earth. And it does worry me more than anything else. Everything, almost everything else, it's like if we don't get it right now, maybe we can get it right later. And with climate, it's if we don't respond adequately to it now, the runaway changes and the damage they wreak, um, you know, will will be already is in many ways irreversible. And hope for me isn't pretending that climate change does didn't exist or that we can push it back into non existence, but it's the difference between the best and worst case scenarios. And there part of what's encouraging is that so many new technologies or rather two new technologies have arisen and some subsidiaries. In two thousand We really didn't know how to produce non-fossil fuel energy. We really thought that there was no alternative to fossil fuel. Wind, wind and solar were primitive, expensive, and weren't really seen as adequate to the situation. And one of the great unsung heroes, you know, of our time many of the unsung heroes of our time are the engineers around the world who've produced wind and solar that is now cheaper in many places including wind in iowa you know solar in asia than conventional power and they continue evolving these new technologies that make it Entirely feasible for us to leave fossil fuel behind, which is great because we have to. And the obstacles are not technological, they're only political.
1: I was, I was pleased to, to hear Macron give a speech where he said there is no plan B for the planet. Um, I don't know how much effect it, it will have, but at least it was said in in a place where many people were listening, and i again you know the question of changing people 's minds, who may have purely economical uh, motives for keeping their minds shut um, is 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 worrisome, but at least at least one world leader said it to another God knows if if that will help but i'm i'm i was i 'm really struck by this ability you have of speaking about what emotionally moves you most and differentiating it from what intellectually you think is most important because emotionally um i think your your various essays on me too have been so powerful and so engaging and um hopefully will make people who think who who don't think deeply about how important um this this change really is now. Think differently. I think your your essays will at least encourage them to, to begin the slow process of trying to change our cultural behavior towards women.
0: I hope so. And of course, feminism as violence against women is so personal. It's about sex and bodies and how we live our lives and treat each other. And what's more visceral and immediate than that with climate the fact that even so much of the world is actively engaged is kind of a miracle because it means understanding some very complex um science and a sense of inseparability interconnectedness in which what comes out your tailpipe contributes to the upper atmosphere which governs the patterns of weather and climate and, and, you know, the currents of the ocean and rainfall and drought and everything else. And it's really that, it, you know, it is complex and difficult to articulate. And I'm participating in a climate action tomorrow and I've joined the board of the great climate organization, Oil Change International. But I'm not as good, for example, as, for example, Bill McKibben at articulating What's going on and why it matters and getting people riled up about it as, you know, as he does so beautifully. I
1: can't wait for, I know he's, uh, he's working on, on, uh, re, republishing his great essay from 30 years ago or 35 years ago. I can't wait to see what, what he does with it. Um, Rebecca, in, in closing, a- aside from Virginia Woolf, who I know you go back to again and again, Who else gives you sustenance that you discovered early on and who has not betrayed your your passion for them? Because I often think about the various people we loved once upon a time who may not anymore be with us in the same way. By that I mean to say who who we don't love in the same way as when we were 20.
0: Well, Borges has been tremendously important and, uh, you know, I've got, I'm looking at it now, a Penguin paperback of Labyrinths, and it demonstrated to me how creative nonfiction could be, how free this essayistic format could be, and it's been tremendously important to me, you know, to me as a set of models of where you could go. Berger, who I read pretty early on, and um, uh, George Orwell, also was somebody... You know, I'm not done with. I started with early James Baldwin, uh, Barry Lopez, and um, oh, what is his name? Desert Solitaire. Ed Abbey are people who really kind of opened up what writing about place could mean uh, to me, and. You know, it's interesting how early early should be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a. Yeah. Dante
0: Marcos gave me a sense of what political language could be, but he emerged on the scene in 1994 when I was in my early 30s, and um, but those other writers came much earlier.
1: And is Benjamin still the influential? Is Benjamin still part of the uh, the people? Yes, were...
0: he is. I haven't, you know, I haven't gone back to him, but he's present. Also, as somebody, you know, who 10 years after Borges gave me a sense of this is what essays can do. This is the work you can do in a short non-fictional space. And poets as well. Philip Levine, I discovered when I was 18, and is somebody, one of my favorite writers and favorite poets. And, um, you know, I'm not sure... Who else?
1: Oh, but that is such a, a list
0: of people uh, who came really early. Yeah,
1: that that is, and and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the poet also, because I think that 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 form of condensed language is so important.
0: I actually read poetry regularly and think it's really good for prose writers because it's easy for us to get bogged down in a kind of predictable conventional language. And a very predictable way of moving across the page, and poets remind us that you can take leaps of faith and your readers will follow that you don't have to explain anything that language can do all these other glorious things. they really kind of sharpen and refine the sense of language I think, and you know and sometimes my research involves so soci- you know reading sociology and treatises and very dry things and it's you know whatever's around you is contagious and that you know in poetry kind of counterbalances that
1: Rebecca what a what a what a wonderful uh, place to to say goodbye to you for now and to say what a what a joy it is what a pleasure it is to to speak with you and I I really thank you for taking my call
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I I, hope to see you before long.
1: I I hope so, too. Let's stay in touch and be well and continue the fight. Great. Bye-bye.